telling the story of Japan, part of the illustration here, or the point of the story, is to get at an understanding of the way that uh, theology interacts, I think, with us at a, at a basic level. Um, and so I'm going to use the illustration here of a man named Yukio Mishima. And Mishima kind of embodies several things coming together. He's uh, really uh, very much in the uh, pre-war and wartime period that he's uh, become a novelist and a major figure in Japan. And yet uh, the problem is, well, what, what is he? You know, his identity had been very much with the nation-state, with the emperor, and with this understanding. Uh, and the end of the story, which I'm going to tell first, uh, so you can understand where the story is going, is maybe captured in Freud's phrase that all, the aim of all life is death. And of course, Freud comes up this with this understanding uh, when he develops the death drive, uh, that his notion is that uh, our basic instinct even, and he is calling it an instinct, uh, is self-destructive, is towards death, that in some way we engineer our own death. And of course my understanding is that what Freud has described very much overlaps with a uh, New Testament understanding of the way in which when we talk about death, that death is actually something that we take up into ourselves. And I think this is uh, not just an abstraction, but that we can actually uh, run this down, and perhaps there's no one who is a better illustration of it uh, than Mishima. But again, as I said with Nihon Jinron, the point with Mishima, the point of this, is not to simply tell this bizarre tale uh, uh, as an end in itself, but as a kind of illustration then of a kind of the universal predicament that we that we all face. Mishima's friend Henry Scott Stokes describes the final scene of Mishima's life. Uh, he had just given a speech on the self-defense forces building in which he's trying to raise up some sort of revolutionary army or that is the appearance of what he's doing he says uh, and this this photo by the way if you go back and look in uh, look magazine actually had a picture of this the image of Mishima's head decapitated from his body the headband, you know, the hakimaki, the, the, with the Japanese uh, sun emblazoned upon it, was still secure about his head. It was propped on the blood-soaked carpeted floor of General Mashita's office, which Mishima and his cohort had come in and uh, tied Mashita up in his office. Stokes says this remains indelibly in my mind, that powerful head, Mishima had a, in fact, he seemed to have a, a large head in comparison to his torso. That large, powerful head had been torn from its shoulders. And Stokes' question is the question that I'm wanting to answer. How had Mishima justified this action to himself?
And Mishima is interesting because, in fact, he does articulate his justification for this. But the articulation of it and the public action are two very different things. That is, the public action uh, is fairly straightforward that Mishima is trying to raise some sort of uh, paramilitary force that he's going to renew the emperor to his throne. Uh, and this all fails, and so he commits traditional Japanese seppuku, in which you run the, you know, the long sword through your belly and go from left to right and actually uh, take out your innards and place them on a tray before your second uh, takes off your head. But of course, in the case of Mishima, is there were the 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 man who was to decapitate him was not very well trained. Unfortunately, Mishima himself had trained him and had to hack away at his head a couple of times before he was able able to decapitate him. And so it must have been a very slow and painful death. But what I would claim about Mishima is that his life, Yukio Mishima's life, illustrates uh, what Takeo Doi is going to call Amai. Um, and what I'm going to say about Amai, this is a Japanese word that is uh, defined as a kind of ultimate dependence. Uh, and Doi says this is the characteristic aspect of Japanese. It's to be encountered in Japanese child-raising methods and in Japanese search for mother and ultimately Doi says in a Buddhist understanding of the return to Mother Earth. Um, and what my understanding of Amai is that it is actually Freud's death drive. And I don't mean this, that it just happens to be that. I mean the way that Doi is running it down, and I'll tell the story later, uh, is that his own teacher had studied under Sigmund Freud and so Amai, this most characteristic of Japanese, you know, ideas or understanding, is very much Freud's death drive. But it's Freud's death drive, uh, not in the way that Freud conceived it, because Freud is conceiving it then in a negative sense, that the death drive is... Uh, you know, masochism or sadism uh, and is the very point of psychoanalysis would be to rid yourself of the death drive and of course to the degree that uh, Freud is describing this understanding as a negative force I think we could agree with him but Freud then is himself going to come to the conclusion uh, that the death drive is ultimately inescapable. He's going to write uh, a short article, analysis, terminable or interminable. And what he's saying about uh, the death drive and what he's saying about analysis is that analysis cannot bring about a cure or an escape from the death drive, that this is the thing that has gripped us all. It is the human disease. 
and ultimately the human disease. We can manipulate it, we can try to live with it, but ultimately it is incurable. And uh, again, what needs to be emphasized, it's not just that the death drive is mortality, but it's living out, taking up death, and doing, living a kind of masochistic life, usually masochistic. Freud is going to even relate sadism ultimately to a kind of masochism. And so those Japanese uh, uh, who are interpreting Amai through Freudian death drive, and this is specifically, you know, Doi is a psychoanalysis, he's one of the prime interpreters of death drive. Uh, very specifically then, uh, instead of in a Western sense of imagining that there's some escape, the whole point of the Japanese ethos, I would say the Japanese religion, and of course Freud will call the death drive the nirvana principle, relating it directly to Buddhism, and I think specifically, you know, he's thinking there of a Zen Buddhist understanding, um, that there is this notion of uh, privileging the death drive. And that's what you get uh, in, I think, Mishima, it, Mishima's embodiment of Amai. And that's what I'm saying about Mishima. But in all of this, understand that I'm using this as a kind of illustration of that biblical picture of sin in which we take up death. I think we can describe this in many ways, maybe an infinite variety of ways, of the way in which we take up death, but there will always be a pattern to it. There's always the same basic universal structure to it. And so it may manifest itself in an infinite variety of ways. But that once you, once you understand the, the, the pattern, once you understand the deep structure of the grammar of this thing, let's we could just call it sin in a biblical sense, then I think that whatever manifestation we might encounter, we realize, oh, this is the same structure uh, under a different name or a different system or a different manifestation. But Mishima then embodies the Japanese encounter with, you know, the West, the reaction to the loss of the war, and in a sense, a very real loss of a sense of self that he always lamented that he did not get to uh, die with his friends in the war, and in this way he imagined that he could have made, made his name great and achieved some sort of, you know, the eternal pantheon of the gods. And of course, in a Japanese sensibility, this is not just metaphor that the uh, being enshrined at death, there is the literal deification of those who have been martyred or who have lost their lives in war. His art form, then, that he's going to take up is the novel. And what he's attempting to do in the novel is to give voice to the Japanese self within a Western framework. The novel itself is very much uh, a kind of Western invention 
uh, and and he he understands this. In fact, he's always going to be torn by his writing and his sense that in, that is a betrayal of his true self, which is in some way in our inarticulate self. And so his swing, you know, from a left-wing liberalism uh, in which he's a a personality that he's, you know, an actor, he's a a novelist, a celebrity, and then he swings to a right-wing fanaticism. Uh, the, The question in this, if there is, if there's ever really a change, and I think what he is going to claim is that, no, it was always these two forces fighting within himself. Um that it marks the turn from uh, maybe a, a picture of, that's happening in Japan itself from, you know, the, the left to the right. But his psychological move is one that he describes himself from a, mini, a, a kind of feminine masochism, uh, which in his novels, you know, some of the strangely sexualized novels, and maybe sexual is the wrong word, they're sadomasochistic fantasies of homosexualism. Um, they're, they're really a, a, a kind of uh, self-destructive fantasy. And then what Freud will talk, call a kind of moral masochism, the idea that you're shouldering an ultimate sense of duty that's only... Uh, uh, expressible in the sacrifice of the self. That's literally what uh, Mishima is going to illustrate as he takes up the plan, the plot of the way in which he can engineer his own death. He can engineer his death such that it seems to be a sacrifice, um, and that it is a sacrifice. What we in the name of what we were, are calling Nihonjin Ron. It marks the shift from what Japanese were, you know, he, uh, Mishima will talk about that Japanese were subject to a kind of feminization after the war and their subjectivity to the Western world. And his, you know, he goes through military training, his own brand of military training. He begins to lift weights and change the shape of his body. And his idea here, he is saying, captures the ideas of a Japanese society or the Japanese society as a whole to a a turn to a more masculine, self-assertive interest. And the way that Mishima will express this new masculinity you know, and just bulging new muscles. He poses nude and uh, with a samurai sword. Um, he will say, see it as a kind of reflection of the Japanese society as a whole, uh, growing, you know, growing economic strength. Uh, and uh, but what his main concern is: is there anything left worth dying for? And so he really isn't going to invent something that he might sacrifice his life for and he might die for. And so he would, you know, many are saying that the individual must sacrifice the family. They must sacrifice what, you know, a kind of feminine concern. And you sacrifice the self for the 
country or even for the, the corporation, the company. But Mishima's justification of his own sacrifice is that uh, it is the means, he thinks, and this is there in a lot of Japanese thought, that death and sacrifice is the only road to a real existence. And I, I hope in this that as we talk about sacrifice that there one is able to distinguish then the sacrifice that we have in the Old Testament, the sacrifice of Christ, because a lot of this will begin to sound very Christian. And I think there is a Christianity that makes the mistake of Mishima or of Japanese society and what I would claim is the universal mistake of imagining that death as sacrifice is the road to a real existence. And of course the privileging of death, the you know, uh, self-destruction, um, that is not Christianity, that in Christianity there is the idea that death is the final enemy to be defeated. But I think what we're describing here is the thing that is precisely being defeated. So, just as Nihon Jinron constituted a right-wing ideology, that Mishima is going to describe it as aimed at silencing uh, his own inner voice, the we might say the counter voice of the left in the country as a whole. But what Mishima is really describing to us, he wants to silence uh, what he uh, is going to describe as the voice of his feminine self, the voice that writes uh, and he's going to finally obey the voice of his father. His father had never wanted him to write, had never wanted him to be a novelist, and in fact had torn up his words, and Mishima would only take his novels and show them then to his mother, uh, and hid his uh, work from his father all his life. But of course, the, the voice within him, uh, the self-condemning voice of his own father, taken up into himself in a Freudian understanding the idea of the superego, uh, that, you know, punishing voice within, what we might call guilt. But of course Freud recognizes and it becomes clear in Mishima that this guilt is not guilt for any uh, particular thing. It's just a kind of a guilt of for, for being, a kind of guilt uh, that is uh, already practicing sacrifice. It's a punishing guilt that in the punishment there is the pleasure or the sensation, you know, this is the masochism, of, of paying the price then of this split within the self. And so uh, this will come to mean a literal slitting open of the stomach you know, the literal expressing the guts and literally letting the inner juices flow in the final creative act, or at least Mishima is going to, dis to, to portray it as a kind of creative act. His self-destruction is his last piece of artwork, the self-destruction and silence that follows. 
And so he had always searched for a cause to die for, and he could only ultimately find it, and this is the irony, this is the paradox here. His own death is the cause. Uh, His own destruction is really what he's aiming to do. And the whole engagement with Japanese society, the emperor worship, he's going to tell us in the, you know, his book, The Sun and, Sun and Shield, that was simply an outward justification for this inward uh, moral masochism. It's the tautological world of the moral masochist that the cure involves the killing of the patient. The resolution, uh, you know, to the problem might seem to be giving oneself completely over to what Freud would call the problem. But it's this closed inner space that Mishima explores, I think, in a, in a, in a brilliant fashion. It's sick. It's, it's, you know, hard to read at times. And yet, it's precisely that sickness, that kind of thing that maybe uh, we're most ashamed to articulate, that Mishima openly articulates, that indeed he captures this inner space, this you know, kind of claustrophobic brilliance. And so his slide into a duty-bound moral masochism uh, constitutes the final closure uh, in which there is no escape. The only escape will be disembowelment. And what I'm saying about Mishima's death uh, is that accords with Doi's picture of Ama, you know, ultimate dependence. Well, this ultimate dependence is itself then a kind of living death that uh, it is, Doi is going to describe it. He never uses the language of you know, masochism or a deadly masochism. He's always going to privilege this. Um, and yet, uh, I think Doi is engaged in a program very similar to Mishima's of justifying the closed spaces and making dying justifiable and even pleasurable. You'll hear this in Western poetry. You'll even hear it in Western religion that death is what makes life beautiful. And, you know, what a crock that is. No, death is the enemy. Death is an ugly thing. Death is evil. Uh, And so I I think that in in a Christian sensibility, we should never lose that footwork. But uh, unfortunately, that's precisely what we often lose because our Christianity has been so perverted that we imagine that as in a kind of pagan understanding that a sacrifice, you know, and even Christ's death is going to be portrayed in terms of a propitiation, uh, a, a, a sacrifice that is necessary for the gods, so that Christianity is turned into a pure paganism. Uh, and that I think attached to this, then, is a psychology that Mishima and Doi and uh, in Nihonjin Rome, that it's being illustrated, that the, the tautology that modern Japan I think is facing and that Mishima illustrates uh, is the human problem. It's the human predicament that many of us will justify our own, you know, we'll talk ourselves into our own destruction 
certainly, I mean literally, in suicide, but maybe on a, on a daily basis. One of Mishima's early memories, in Japan they uh, used to come and collect the night soil, and uh, you know there was actually a person who was a ladrel, uh, ladled the excrement, <clears throat> and and Mishima pictures his own work in this kind of way. He's born to a upper middle class. They're actually a fairly wealthy family, but he's going to reflect both in his art and the psychic dilemma that he faces. Uh, I think the same thing that Japan's defeat and Japan's embrace of modernity embraces. He he gets at this in his novel, Confessions of a Mask. It may be his most autobiographical novel. He portrays a life that from its very first moments is really set upon a return to his childhood, to his early desires, and he always replays you know, the scenes of his early memory, uh, the, the scene of birth, where a wooden bowl, you know, there's a re- it reflects a crescent of light, and it ends then with a sadomasochistic fantasy of death, a, a final separation from what he explains throughout his, the only significant woman in his life was his mother, and this was always true, that he would take his novels, you know, and show them to his mother, and that she was the, the significant other. And this is the way that Doi portrays Amai, is that there is always the seeking of a return in Amai to uh, the, the mother, but who is the ultimate mother? Well, Mother Earth, and how does one return to Mother Earth? Well, only through... Uh, a decomposition of the self in which one becomes part of the soil once again. And so death is the only means of return. And the way that Mishima will present, you know, sexuality, eroticism, is that it's always an erotic death that uh, in some way deflects the experience of an erotic life in confessions of a mask you know he falls in love but uh, nothing ever happens because the woman that he could love could only be his mother so that any woman that he loves becomes his mother and uh, you know the there is this paradox and so he the, there is always with the image of of love coming, then there is this the images of self-destruction, literally of his stomach being slit open. That was an image that he had from childhood. Um, and through this, then, he describes the turn to a kind of uh, homosexual love. And, of course, the idea he's connecting with this is uh, he says that, you know, picturing himself getting into a fight with a rival gang or uh, cutting, being cut or cutting through uh, someone's belly of dying, of his corpse being put in an improvised stretcher, I'm quoting, made of a window shutter and brought back here. Um, 
So he's tormenting himself through his own thought life, or his thought life is a torment. And he says, this torment had frightened me all my life. And so he, the way that he sums this up is that he, it was like he was a night soil man, a ladler of excrement. Um, and Mishima provides his own Freudian interpretation of what he's doing. Um, he says that this bearer of ex- excrement should become the object of a sensuous longing and a feeling of danger. Uh, I won't go into the Freudian understanding, but Mishima is sophisticated enough that Freud is very much uh, being consumed by upper classes in Japan, that he's not unaware of the masochistic element to it. He says, I didn't clearly perceive it at the time, uh, uh, that it was this strange secret voice, he says, uh, but it's significant that it, this voice first manifested to me in the form of the night soil man. The excrement, of course, is earth mother that was calling to me, he said. Mother Earth, in her malevolent love, will make one so much excrement in her embrace, a feeling at once of nothingness and vital power. He says, I became possessed with the ambition to become a night soil man. And the ambition to be a ladler of excrement explains his career, he says, that of being a writer. Excrement, you know, in a Freudian understanding, is the first gift a child gives to its mother. But it's also, at the same time, something of a giving of the self. It's a detachable part of the self. Uh, the handing over of feces for the sake, you know, out of love for someone else, uh, is the occasion upon which an individual parts with a piece of his own body in order to gain the favor of some other person he loves. And so, in a Freudian understanding, it's a prototype of castration. It entails a readiness to give up one's masculinity, and this is the way that Mishima describes his writing, that it was a continual process of castration and giving up himself. And so Mishima, from age 12 to the last years of his life, would bring everything he wrote you know, to his mother. This was the feminine world, and he was giving himself over to a kind of living death on behalf of his mother. Uh, and so Mishima's attitude toward his art, the attitude really of his father that he's going to condemn this literary, this feminine world, uh, it's a sign of, uh, of a lack of manliness. And Mishima would play the good son. He, for his father's sake, he studied law. He became for a short time a bureaucrat. Uh, which his father, that was his father's hope. And so he would write at night, uh, which he would continue all his life, and he would hide it from his father. Uh, the uh, Mishima's his, his writing and his manhood, his very existence, were posed against one another. For his mother, he would produce words, and yet the attitudes of the father must bring an end to words. This is precisely Freud's picture of death drive. The 
you know, think here of Paul's picture in Romans 7 of the agonistic struggle between this, you know, the, the, the law, the law of the mind, and the eye that there is this punishing law of the mind that ultimately Paul describes as this body of death in which one is brought. You know, that, that silence is really the end result of being taken possession. Uh, and that's why, the way he describes Actually, it's his grandmother, he says, that had taken possession of him from his infancy. But it was a possession that passed to his mother. So he, uh, the one person to which he would, could turn, grandmother, mother, and his words were at once a self-presentation, you know, and a giving up of self. So there's this split between mother and father, identifying with his mother over against his father. But his final act then is to become part of the masculine world of his father by being silenced and giving himself over to death. And this is, uh, I think, a kind of neat illustration of the way that the law works for us, that the law then is this punishing, and by law, certainly not any kind of formal mosaic law, but the idea of the law of sin and death, is one in which we would die to achieve the desires of the law. Mishima compares his writing to white ants eating away at a shaft of wood. He says, first comes the the pillar of plain wood, then the white ants that feed upon it. And for me, the white ants were there from the start. And even the pillar of plain wood emerged tardily already half eaten away. And if you think of the ants as the words, the pillar of wood is his ego or self, you know, the body, the pillar of wood is real, and words, the white ants, can only eat away at that reality, and so he feels the reality of himself in some way being undone. His own imagination had become his worst enemy in this, so that when he describes the corrosive nature of words, it is his own psychic dilemma. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a mere intellectual pose. I, you know, I, I think that this is the authenticity that you encounter in true art. Uh, that it may seem a bizarre world at first when you enter into it. But he, I think, is portraying for us the, the, the human predicament, the human battle. He says, he would dribble away his life with words. But the ideal body, the ideal existence, and this, you know, just rings of Freudian understanding, must be absolutely free from any of interference by words. The father, the superego, the law would silence the ego. And so his writing, his life, reflect the gradual turn away from life and words to an embrace of silence and death. And to grasp that turn, uh, the corrosive nature of his art, you know, of, of his writing, of, of his artistic expression has to be understood. And I'll take that up then in the next talk. But this is my, uh, again, let me emphasize that uh, Mishima, I think, is a, a kind of key example of something that in some sense plagues us all.
And maybe Mishima, we look at his life and he articulates that this sickness to such a degree that we experience a kind of revulsion. But I think if we can look at this long enough, we'll recognize this is precisely the living death that is being described in the picture of sin.